Well, good morning and welcome everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, where you matter to us, you matter to God. Uh, today we're going to jump in with a, uh, with a question that we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Is The question is this, what is it that God thinks about when God thinks about you? And the question is actually a little bit more nuanced than that, because chances are for, for most of us, Whatever image that you have of whatever thing that God thinks about when God thinks about you is, is really decided and, and viewed through the lens of you. So the question is actually, what do you think God thinks about when God thinks about you? If you didn't like track that whole thing, I'm going to be talking for about 20 minutes so you can kind of write it down, figure it out, catch up. Like, what did he say again? Because it's going to get a little more complicated and nuanced yet. Because chances are, again, for the huge majority of us in the room, what we think God thinks about when God thinks about us is largely determined by how our day went or how our, this season of life is going. So for example, if, uh, if you've had kind of a rock star day or you're in this like rock star kind of season in life where you're just doing good all over the place, whatever that looks like to you. If, it's, uh, if you're a Christian, this is going to look like kind of a Jesus-centered life. If you're not a Christian, you've got a particular set of values or, uh, or morality or beliefs and whatever your, your code is that you live by. When, when you live well according to whatever standard that you have, uh, chances are when you think about God and what he thinks about you, it's usually pretty good. A lot like how you think about you. So if you go through life and I mean you are kind and you are compassionate and you are patient with everybody around, including Janet from accounting and nobody is kind to Janet. Like, I mean... You have, you're having a good day or a good season. When you volunteer to teach your grandpa how to use Facebook, like you're a good human being. Way to go. Nobody has that kind of patience. But, but like when you go to bed at night and you start thinking about how God thinks about you, chances are you look at kind of about like what you did that day and you go, I think God thinks really kind of highly of me. And maybe I even deserve all of those passages about love and affection that God has towards us. Because after all, look how good I did. But then the opposite sometimes is also true, isn't it? That when you violate whatever it is, whatever kind of code that you live by, or, or when you live a sort of Jesus uncentered kind of life, when you are not so patient and compassionate to Janet in accounting and your grandma asks you how to Instagram works and you're like, no, I'm done. I've had enough. And when, you, uh, when you're driving down the road and the car behind you is like right behind you and so you do what every reasonable, rational human being does, especially if you're driving four miles an hour over the posted speed limit, is you slow way down. Right, just to annoy them that much more. And they like drive around you, you know, they give you the international hand symbol of uh, disagreement as they cut you off. And then, you, and then you pull into the church parking lot. Probably time to take that encounter sticker off, I'm telling you. <laughs> and like later that night, you go to bed and you close your eyes and you start to think about what God thinks about when God thinks about you. And sometimes it's not so positive. 
Because you have kind of this idea in your head, kind of almost embedded in your soul about how much of life works. You sort of view God like you do the rest of your life, which is the value that you have is decided by the work that you do. And so if you don't put in very good work, the value on the end of that isn't very high. Or if you put in extra work and you're exceptional at being a human being, the value you have at the end of all that you think is pretty high. And whatever God thinks about when God thinks about you is really decided day to day, season by season of how you view how you think about you. And so we're going to push back up against that today with a story that really cuts through all of that. It doesn't just even out the scales a little bit. It just totally destroys the scales entirely. And says that entire system is in fact how the rest of the world works. But it's not how God works. And it's not how it works in God's house. And we're going to go to a story uh, found in the gospel, in the Jesus story according to Luke, uh, to see clearly what God thinks about when God thinks about you. Uh, Luke chapter 15, the page number is in the program. Um, the words are also going to be on the screen behind me. And as we start off, and if you're like, hey, I think I've heard this one before, you have, if you've been around here, I'm going to preach this story um, every three years, whether you need to hear about grace or not. We're going to come back to it. Um, those of you who, uh, who, who have been around here for a little while, you know that this church was essentially started on this Bible passage. It's often called the prodigal son story, but we're going to see that that's a misnomer. That's a bad name for this passage because if there's somebody who acts prodigally in the story, it isn't the son, but we'll get to that in just a moment. In verse 11 in Luke chapter 15, it starts off that Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now the subject of that sentence is also the subject of that story, a man. This man, this father who had these two boys, that father is the important part in the story because it's that father that the story is about. So often we think about the stories ourselves, whether we're the hero, whether we're the villain, we're the central character or one of them in the story. And so it's not wrong to write yourself into the story, but we're just not going to write ourselves into the main character of the story. It's really important you see today that that main character of the story is in fact the boy's dad, the father, the man in the story. It's also important that there are two sons because there's kind of two different sort of people that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is doing his ministry and he's collected these two special types of followers and now they're each gathered around him as he starts off with this new teaching. He's got the one kind of people that are affectionately known as the tax collectors and sinners and they actually don't even mind that title so much. They sort of own it. They even refer to each other as the tax collectors and sinners. They're sort of living this quasi-moral life of discovering things for themselves. Uh, these are the semi-spiritual uh, but not religious types. These are the people who are trying to figure life out on their own terms. And now Jesus has been hanging out with them. And they, so they've been hanging out with Jesus. And they're enjoying meals together. And they're learning from each other. And they actually kind of really like Jesus enough to follow him around and to hear a little bit more about his particular kind of teaching that he's offered. But they're not the only group that's gathered here. There's also the other group, which is the hyper-religious. Sometimes they're called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the 
extremely moralistic, finely tuned consciences type of people. These are the super religious, where they've got every I dotted and every T crossed in a Bible passage for all of life's circumstances. And they would be more than happy to share them with you, whether asked or not. They'll just offer it up. And so they're watching Jesus and they're listening to his teaching, not because they respect him, not because they want to hear more from him. They're essentially waiting for a good opportunity to trap him, to arrest him, to have him thrown in jail, have him taken off the streets because they don't like the kinds of people that Jesus has been associating with. And then there's Jesus kind of in the middle. Hashtag keep Jesus at the center. You may have seen the banner when you walked in. And Jesus is in the center of these two guys. And I would wonder as a preacher, like, what is he going to say to these two different kinds of people? I mean, they are so entirely dissimilar. And how is he going to wrap both of them into his teaching? And Jesus does what really I think only Jesus can do. He tells a story that speaks perfectly to exactly where they are and the kind of questions that they're asking. And just before I get into the story, I just want you to, I want you to hear how what a genius that Jesus is. I mean, outside of the whole dying on the cross, rising from the dead, outside of the whole claims of being divine and being the son of God, like outside of all of that stuff, I think that Jesus is a remarkable human being and you should at least listen and consider some of his teaching purely on a fundamental and at like a human level because he's so clever and he's so insightful that I think even if you ditch all the Jesus like rising from the dead stuff, he's still worth paying attention. However, I do also think that he really solidified that teaching when he died and rose again from the dead and claimed to be divine. So probably worth a guy, uh, worth listening a couple things to. This is Jesus. He's in the center. He's talking to these two people, these two groups of people. And so he tells a story cleverly about two sons. You can kind of tell like where this is going in relation to these two brothers. Verse 12. This is a story that Jesus tells. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now, could you imagine how offensive that that would be in any kind of culture? That essentially he says, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I don't want to wait another 20 or 30 years to get my inheritance. Could you just pretend that you're dead right now so that I can get my money and I can move on? It's offensive in every culture, especially that one. What's, what's so wild about the story, though, is that the dad listens. So he, that's the father, divided his property between them. That's how much he loves these boys. He would go to that extent simply to, to hang with them and to be with them in the season of questioning or curiosity, even in the series of season of pushing him away. He hangs in. Now, the word that we have translated there as property could also be uh, the, the original word there that's used in the language that this was written in is the word bios, where we get our word biology from. Biology is the study of Living things, study. Okay, so if you have a quiz coming up, like the biology is the study of living things. Heads up. Um, so when it says like the father divided his, his bios, I mean, he's talking about, he's divided his life. Maybe a better uh, translation of that would be something like he divided his livelihood between the boys. He divided everything he had between the boys. Sometimes I think about like the inheritance today and we're like, wow, 
He totally just cashed out his pension, right? He, he totally transferred his 401k or 403b or IRA or some more letters or numbers that don't really mean a whole lot, right? But like he did this wire transfer and sent it over and wow, he sent over, you know, his accumulation of his life's resources. <laughs> no, no. They didn't have any of that then. They didn't have a bank transfer or wiring the money. What the dad had to do in the story to liquidate his assets was to take every camel, every sheep, every goat, every living room chair, every dining table, every plate, cup, and fork that he had, bring it, bring it to the market downtown in the village and sell it all. One piece at a time. And so the entire village knew what this boy was asking for. Word got around. Did you hear what happened? His boy asked him to, to liquidate everything so he could get his inheritance early. Could you imagine such an offensive thing? And then the dad, and then he, he's doing it right now. The pain that must have been present in the father's heart as he went through this. No doubt this dad is, is waiting and is hoping against hope that this screw-up young kid of his is going to come to his senses and say, I'm so sorry, dad. I didn't know what that meant for you. I didn't know what I was asking for when I asked for your life. I don't want you to go through with this anymore. Dad, I'm happy where I am. But that day never comes. It's like the kid's got like, like dollar signs in his eyes and he doesn't see the tears in his dad's. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, the inheritance, and he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now I'm going to leave wild living up to your own uh, particular imaginations. You can think about that as with whatever creativity you can think about. Um, for me, I'm like, he's running with scissors, you know, cutting, <laughs> cutting the mattress tag off from the you know, bed, drinking milk right out of the carton. This is, this is some wild living kind of stuff. It's probably more... But suffice to say, he did, in fact, squander the wealth. He wasted everything. That's why if you've heard of this story before, chances are you heard it as the story of the prodigal son. A prodigal is a word that in Christian circles means like wayward child who eventually comes home again. A prodigal for the rest of the world means somebody who spends recklessly with extravagance. Somebody whose bank account is more like a tube than a cup. It's just like all the way through. Nothing hangs around. Money in, money out. Whose, whose pockets doesn't actually have bottoms. They're just holes. And everything that goes in goes right through and out again. That's prodigal. Somebody who just flashes his stash and spends it all as soon as he gets it. And so it's appropriate to call this kid a prodigal because he squandered that inheritance that his dad gave him. Verse 14, after he in fact spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to have a need. That's an understatement because famines then don't mean the same thing as famine today. Sometimes famine today, and we think, well, that's probably like an interruption in the food supply chain. 
uh, UNICEF is going to have to do something, or World Vision, or famine then, you knew no help was coming. A famine for him would mean things turned violently, quickly. A famine then meant almost immediately when people got hungry, they started stealing. They started hurting each other. They started killing each other. This is a, a violent post-apocalyptic setting. It's every man, woman, or child for himself. To say that the man was in need is likely a huge understatement. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And you can see now Jesus is just like smirking. He's rubbing it in. He's making up the story as he goes. So he can kind of do whatever he wants. This isn't like a true to life story. Jesus is just telling this whole parable in order to drive home a spiritual truth and in order to drive that home as much as he possibly can. He goes, yeah, and there's pigs involved. To his primarily Jew Jewish audience, they're not even allowed to touch pigs, let alone eat pigs, let alone serve pigs. But nevertheless, this is where the young man is. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but they didn't share. <laughs> no one gave him anything. Uh, could you imagine this kind of bottomed out life of his that he has dropped so far down on the pecking order of society that now when he looks up, he's seeing the underbelly of a pig that he's not even allowed to touch, yet he's responsible to feed them. I mean, there is no such thing as rock bottom more than what this young guy is experiencing right here. Yes, he squandered his wealth. Except for, you know what? And some of you have kind of learned this the hard way. Did you know that money isn't the worst thing that you could squander? I mean, it's a bad thing to squander money. Don't, don't get me wrong. In fact, in fact, back then, they didn't want any money squandered at all. In fact, the Jewish community had a ceremony, a shame ceremony called a kevavah. Kevavah. Say it with me, would you? Kevavah. A Jewish shame ceremony for anybody who squandered their money on Gentiles, on outsiders, on non-Jewish people. If you, if you spent money recklessly and, and ended up losing an investment and gave a bunch of money to some non-Jewish people outside of the community, they didn't view that as an individual loss only. They viewed it as a communal loss of resources that are now outside of like God's jurisdiction. And they hated it. And so they actually had a shame ceremony for anybody that Anybody that lost this money outside of the community, they'd bring that person in. They'd set a large clay jar in front of them. And the elders of the village and everybody else who wanted to would gather around. And they'd take that jar, pick it up high in front of the person, and smash it. And as the pieces scattered all across the floor of that clay pot, they would look at those pieces and they would say, this is our relationship now. It's broken. It will never be restored. This is what you are to us. And they would leave. Money is a bad thing to waste for them. I don't think that was even the worst thing to waste. 
I'm just picturing this guy in the story. You know, and he spent his 20s doing what a lot of 20-year-olds do. And I think it was fun for a while. Even falling feels like flying for a little while. And then he woke up in his 30s and it's almost like he hit the ground. And he looks back now and it's not just money that he wasted. As he looks back on his spent 20s and he's going, it's like time was wasted too. And I, and I can't get that back. And every successive year after that, I think he looks back at that time that he squandered and he goes, it was so valuable. I had no idea. And the closer that he and any of us get towards that end, the, the more he realizes the value of what he spent and what he, what he used up so frivolously and how valuable it actually was when the time got short. Money isn't the worst thing to squander. Church, I don't even think time is the worst thing to squander. But he wakes up every morning and he's alone outside of the pigs, but they don't share any of their food with him. And he realizes, I've got an older brother. I've got a big brother at home. I've got a dad at home. And my dad loves me, well, to pieces. He showed me that. And I squandered that too. I squandered it away. I spent it without ever seeing the value behind it. Money isn't the worst thing that you can squander. I don't even think time is, but I think that's that relationship capital that he could have invested and continued to grow, but he didn't. And he realizes now, I've got to do something about it. And he does. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I know, I'll set back, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. You see, the son, he knows that ship has sailed on sonship. He is trying to instead get hired back. If only I could get hired as a, as a servant, as a contractor, as a day laborer. If I could just be hired onto the estate, at least then I'll have enough to eat and I wouldn't be jealous of the pigs anymore. And so he goes back to his father and I think he rehearses the speech that whole time, right? Because it's a long ways off. I think it took a long time to get back. I've sinned against father. I've sinned against heaven. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He just gets everything right. He's just wondering how in the world dad is going to receive him when he comes over that hill and he sees the little house he grew up in with, with the smoke from the chimney wafting up into the air. How's dad going to treat me when I get back? But what he doesn't know, church, what the man doesn't know is dad's been on his front porch and he is an old man. He's been squinting into the distance this entire time. He's been watching over that hill. He's been waiting for someone to come over that hill. 
And he, and he remembers just exactly how a person walks. You, you know people, you've got friends and you can almost like by their gait, by the way they walk, you know exactly who it is. And he's been watching and he's been squinting. He's been on his toes waiting for anyone to come over that hill. And when he does, when he sees that boy with that particular walk start to come home, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He, he didn't walk. No, no. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and, and, he, and he kissed him. And it's like the most beautiful scene in the world. His dad is like grabbing him up and he just like picks him up out of the air and hangs on to him and he hugs him and he kisses him. This is an important part of the story. Why is it that you think that the dad ran? He didn't walk. Most dads walk. Actually, they kind of probably moseyed. <laughs> they had dignity. It also didn't hurt that uh, men in that day wore, they probably called it a robe, but I'm going to go with dress. It was kind of long down to his ankles. And it's not made of uh, like the Lululemon material that you can like stretch an infinite amount of ways and also cost an infinite number of dollars. <laughs> it didn't do that. You know, it's wool. You couldn't run in it. You could only run in it if you took your dress and you hiked it up and then you tucked it into your big leather belt that they had and then pull that one tight. And then you could kind of show a little leg, right? Sky's out, thighs out. I almost didn't say it, but you know. And then, and then he could run. And then he could run as fast as his old legs could take him, run out to that kid. He's throwing every sense of dignity he has to the wind. Why did he run instead of walk? I think he knew how the world works. I think he knew how every part just about of this world works. I think that he knew if he delayed another second, he might not be the first one to reach his boy. I think that dad knew that if he delayed too long, the village would be out there. And if he was late to meet his son, they'd already have him sitting down in the center of a circle with a big clay pot around him. And they'd already have that in the air and they would smash it to bits on the ground and say, this is the remains of our relationship. You're dead to us. Shame on you. And the dad knew that he wasn't going to just lose his son once, but a second time anything to keep that from happening. He doesn't walk. He hikes up his dress and tucks it in. He runs to the boy, gets to him first, and declared the rest of the world is based on shame. But here in my father's house is a place of grace. There will be no kevavah today. Not here. That's not how this works. And he wraps his arms around that boy. In verse 21, the son 
start saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Shh. The father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. You know, they invited that whole village. They invited the elders. They invited the townspeople. They invited the gossipers who knew the entire story and the parent story and the grandparent stories and all the stories from way back. They knew everything. And no, no, no. Everybody get out here. We've got a fattened calf we just threw on the barbecue and there's so much of it to go around because we want to tell everybody how you're going to relate to my screw up kid that's back again. He is not a hired servant. He is not marked by shame. He is a son of mine, and you will treat him with every kind of dignity and every kind of respect that you treat me with. That's not how it works in the world. That's how it works in the father's house. but there's two brothers. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. <laughs> and so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother, your brother has come. And your father killed a fattened calf because he has them back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You know, Jesus is talking right now about a story with the father and the two sons, but he's not just talking about a father and two sons. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about earth. He's talking about decisions that we make that have a huge implication. If you pictured heaven as like harps and clouds somewhere and it's altogether dull and uninteresting, that's okay. That's not the heaven Jesus is talking about. As he's talking about story, as he's talking about it in the story here, he's talking about music and dancing and a celebration and a party and a son who's outside the party refusing of his own volition to go into the thing. And so the father is pleading with him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Pay attention to the relationship dynamics and never disobeyed your orders. You can kind of see which son this is. You never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he's not a brother of mine, he's a son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, so it wasn't just drinking milk out of the carton, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, dad is still trying to loop him into the family. You're always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And in the setting, these two groups of people, you could probably see yourself as one or the two of them. Jesus does something incredibly infuriating. He doesn't finish the story. That's it. He never tells us what happens to the older brother. He never tells us if the younger brother made better decisions from that day forward. 
He just ends. Jesus is almost saying, I'm not going to finish it. You finish it. Finish it with your day. Finish it with this week. Finish it with the life you live. Finish it by offering forgiveness and compassion. Forgive it by letting go. Finish it by letting it go of bitterness and resentment and anger and the poison that is killing you from the inside out. Finish the story with how you live today, this week, your life. But I don't think we are the central characters of the story, so that's almost a side point, bonus material. I think the center of the story is that question, what does God think about when God thinks about you? You know, if there's somebody who acted prodigally in the story, I don't think it was the younger brother. I mean, not just the younger brother. He wasted a good sum of money and time and relationship. That's true. But I think the prodigal, the person who spends recklessly and irrationally in the story is the father who divides his life for these two boys. And I don't know why. It's irresponsible and it's reckless. And I don't know why when the screw-up younger brother comes over, he runs and not walks. He deserved the shame that the village was going to give him, that the world was going to give him. I don't know why he gives him a robe and a ring, new shoes and a party. I don't know why he would spend so much on him again and again. It's like you've been through this before. You know how this ends. Dad, you're gonna get hurt. And he goes, that's just exactly the point though, is what I think about when I think about my boys and you, church, is one word, love. And it's not anything that you have done, but what I have done for you. I love you with this kind of reckless extravagance. Could you imagine God choosing to pay the price of the death of God for people like us? I mean, if anything screams reckless extravagant, paying a price like that to receive a person like me, He's a prodigal God. I think about what that reckless extravagance was like. What that reckless kind of abandon for your own life would be like. I want to tell you the true story of a guy named Rick who grew up uh, just outside of London in England. And Rick had a, had a heart for service. He joined the Metropolitan Police Department in London and then the British Armed Forces. And then he left to move to Brooklyn, New York in order to eventually enlist in the U.S. Army. Again, heart of service. He served in conflicts all over the world. He served in Vietnam, Central America, all kinds of places until eventually he ended up taking a job as the head of uh, security for Morgan Stanley. I, I tell you all of this simply to explain a little bit of Rick's heart and also why it was 
that he found himself on the 44th floor of the South Tower on September 11, 2001. When the first plane hit the tower that he wasn't in, but he could look out and see flames and smoke coming out. And he could hear over the PA system throughout the entire second tower to stay put, stay where you are, stay at your seat. Help is coming, more instruction will follow. But Rick knew better. And so he grabbed a flashlight, a bullhorn and a walkie talkie. And one by one, he started shouting at people to come to the stairwell and start the 40 floor, 44 floor trek downward to get out of the building safely. And they did. One by one, by one, by one. He stayed there, even singing these songs he knew in order to calm him, just like he sang to his platoon, to platoon back in Vietnam. He would sing to them as they went down the stairwell to get out of the tower, and then he would come back again and again to rescue as many as he, as he possibly could. He was even in the stairwell somewhere between the floor and the 44th floor when the second plane hit the tower and shook the entire building. And he continued to guide people down and to save life after saved lives. Almost 3,000 people lost their life that day, but almost none of them were one of the 2,687 Morgan Stanley employees under Rick's supervision that day. He saved thousands of lives and ran back into the building countless times calling his wife when he had a chance just to tell her, I love you and I've never been happier than when I'm with you. This is just something I have to do now. They told him not to go back that last time. But he said, until every life is saved, I'll keep on. He was last seen around the 10th floor heading up when the tower collapsed. I share that story with you because every once in a while we get a glimpse of this reckless kind of self-sacrificial love. And I just imagine Jesus telling this story, knowing what his future will hold, knowing he's running into that building, knowing they're going to nail him to the cross for people who will reject him. But he wanted you to know what God thinks about when God thinks about you. And it's just one word, love. He loves you, no matter what. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, you love us so very much, to death and back. God, wherever we are in this story, if we're one of the older brother and we're holding on to our bitterness, holding on to our resentment. God, pry open our hands and our hearts to have you take it from us. God, if we're living emotionally or spiritually in a far off, distant land, whisper into our hearts like only you, your Holy Spirit can, to come back home. 
Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.